Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and every week we bring you trending topics from the wine world. Hello and welcome to the wonderful world of wine, our weekly radio show and podcast to bring you all the trending topics in the wine world. I am co-host Kim Simone here with my other co-host, Mark Lindsay. How are you this week, Mark? Everything's good, Kim. Good to talk wine Great. with you again this week. Yeah, really nice to chat with you. Get our so listeners we... up to date on all the wine world things going on. That's right. And we do have some uh, some news from the wine world and some new things that are going on. And, you know, we like to keep our eyes on not just the wine news, but the news in general. And whenever there's any kind of, uh, you know, news thingy that pops up that has even anything tangentially to do with wine, my ears always park up. And I'm like, ooh, maybe we should talk about that on the show. So the first thing that we want to talk about today is an article about a couple of wine terms that have been around for a really long time and honestly are, are starting to fall out of fashion, but are still uh, terms that people sort of bandy around both in professional circles and all as far as wine descriptions go or wine class descriptions are old and new, generally used to describe not just differences in where a wine comes from, whether it be from Europe or from a country that was colonized by Europeans, and therefore those Europeans brought wine production with them. But it usually tends to describe uh, differences in style of those uh, two different types of wine. So if you have an old world Chardonnay and a new world Chardonnay, they usually are uh, kind of different from each other. It's interesting that you started out right away with the styles, Kim. I always heard old world, new world, and as a general guide, I would just say refer us to wine regions, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a difference in styles of those wine regions. So let's start and let our listeners know what is old world, Kim. When we say old world wines, where are these wines coming from? So we are talking about European countries that are the ones who sort of established modern day winemaking. So you can go back a long ways to talk about where did wine first come from, but that's not generally what we're talking about. We we tend to mean France, Italy, Spain, Germany, Austria, Greece, sometimes Hungary, all those Western and Central European countries that uh, have a long tradition of winemaking. They may not have been the first in the world to make wine, but they were one of the, I would say, the first area of the world to really bring bring it to a worldwide market. Yeah. And also I would include Croatia, Slovenia, Portugal, Portugal, especially mm. for big, big old world. And just real quick, Kim, let's talk the diff. what's new world. So people, if they hear the term new world, compared to old world? Generally, any of those countries that were colonized by Europeans in the 16th century. So we're talking both North and South America, even though there are native grapes to North America, we, we still consider North and South America to be uh, new world countries, as well as Australia, New Zealand, and also South Africa, because South Africa does have a fairly vibrant wine production industry. And we, we kind of lump... Uh, South Africa Put in. in there. Put too. them in there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and one that is brand new for being considered quote unquote new world wines is China. So that is, I think, an interesting 
divergence from the traditional definition of New World, you know, because we tend to think about vines that were brought over the oceans to these countries that were colonized. And China doesn't really fit that description. No, but they're so trending right now, not only about making wine, but they're also drinking more wine and importing more wines. You're right, though. Think To think of China as being a new world country, it's it's like that uh, whole sweetness thing with wine. It doesn't mm. make sense, but they're there. So how can we tell our listeners they're buying wine? How can you tell on a label if it's old world or new world? On labeling, it's labeled the country, obviously, but what were other things that would stick out on a, on an old world label versus a new world label? The biggest difference? Um, I mean, I think that this is actually a difficult one to answer. And we can say many times that, oh, you know, old world labels are, they're named after the place they come from, whereas wines from other parts of the world might be named by the grape variety. But sometimes that doesn't hold up anymore. And this article that we read said, look for something that says chateau on the label, or I would also say domain, because a lot of burgundy producers will be domain whatever. But again, that's not a hard and fast rule, because there are a lot of California wineries that call themselves chateau something or domain something. So it's other than looking for the country, it's very difficult to tell just by looking at the label, I think, you know, what the yeah. what that style of wine is going to be. And the wine companies know that it's it's kind of a trick and then marketing, they can use that mm. to put those terms in their brand names to kind of trick you on that. So it, like you did hit on what I was thinking too. I mean, it's it, the old world. It's all about the place, the location, the terroir. You know, they don't really, true old world, they're not telling you really the grape. You have to know the location to kind of figure out what's in the bottle. What about, let's get back to what you started out with saying the, the profile or the taste difference between old world and, and new world. How can you tell if you're just blind tasting, a say, an old world cab versus a new world cab? What would stick out to you, the, the tasting difference? I mean, often you're coming up against differences in climate. So if you are thinking about someplace like California or Australia, you're looking at regions that have generally warmer and more sunshiny climates than when you think of, say, northern France or Germany or central Europe. So you often will have riper, more fruity flavors in those wines. But again, this is not a hard and fast rule. And this is really changing more and more as we see the effects of climate change. But that has been the tradition, one of the traditional definitions. You know, if you were to compare a Cabernet or a Merlot from Bordeaux and then a Cabernet or a Merlot from California and you were tasting them blind, you would expect that that Bordeaux would be a little leaner. The fruit would be there, but not necessarily right in your face. It's not going to be full of big vanilla oak. It's not going to taste sweet by any stretch of the imagination. Whereas that California red, be it a single variety or whether it be a blend, you're usually going to get that kind of lusher, riper fruit, sometimes a little hint of sweetness, often more new oak. So you'll get more of that kind of creaminess, that vanilla, oaky, spicy kind of characteristic. So those are the general differences that one would expect to find. But again, as winemaking changes, as grape growing changes, as frankly, as winemaking matures in some of these parts of the world that maybe have only been 
let's say only, you know, only making wine for 200 years as opposed to making wine for 2000 years. As we see more modern winemaking techniques kind of spread across the globe, we are seeing I think a little more of a similarity between wines from different places than uh, than we had in the past. Do you think climate change over the years is going to make it harder to tell an old world and a new world wine eventually? I think so. But even now, I mean, if you look at a really warm growing area, let's say Southern Italy, you put that up against something from California or something from Argentina or Australia, given the differences, take the differences of grape varieties kind of out of the equation. Sometimes it could be really hard to tell the difference between where is this one from and where is this other one from? Because both all of those regions can get very, very warm. So the other thing I wanted to ask you on this subject of old world versus new world, Kim, I remember way back, retailers and restaurants would kind of separate things by old world and new Mm -hmm. world. Do you see that anymore? Or I see it less and less. Even using the terms old world and new world are sort of starting to fall out of fashion. I would say that within probably five or 10 years, we we really won't be using those terms anymore. But yeah, I've seen, you're absolutely right. Like it used to be in wine shops, you know, you would have this section versus that section. You would often see it on restaurant wine lists, you know, they would separate them. And now we definitely see more of all of the Cabernet and Merlots are put together in one section of a wine list, regardless of where they're from. All of the Chardonnays are going to be together. And maybe there's some language on there to differentiate some styles. And I think as styles change and as as experimentation, especially for some of these newer growing areas, keeps happening. We don't necessarily always know by looking at that label for a bottle of Chardonnay what style we're going to get. You look at a bottle of Burgundy, you pretty much know what you're going to get if you know, you know, if you know what you know. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's so much that you don't know you don't know about you know some of these more esoteric wine labels for the the everyday wine drinker. But I feel like most people, if they look at a bottle of California Cabernet, they kind of know what they're getting. But that in the future, that might not necessarily be the case. And I feel like it's the same for red blends, where once upon a time, you know, once upon a time, meaning like 10, 15 years ago, you would see a red blend and you would think you'd be getting something like a Cote de Rhone. And now you see a red blend and you're getting something like Apothic Red. So, you know, Right. Our perception of what does this style name mean, I think, are constantly changing depending on what winemakers are doing and what grape growers are doing. So I think this is a continual work in progress and these things will always be adapting and adjusting. I still do it both ways in retail. I I have the old world countries separated, but if there's a French cab, I have it also with the cabs. So, so you, you would put the same bottle in two different sections. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So if someone wants to focus on old world France, Italy, Spain, this is that. But also those wines may be a single varietal that I'll have in that other section too. Like you said, and that's what happens over the years, the red blends where it was authentic and now there's Bordeaux in there, you know, so people know mm-hmm. that those are blend. And, but, but you had to rest- make a conscious decision to put Bordeaux as a yeah. red blend. Yeah, so people knew that it's really a blend, you know, it's the original. But that's you, you know, doing your bit of education. You know, you're not hitting the people over the head with, hey, I'm going to educate you about wine. But just by putting it in that section, hopefully it will open some people's eyes up to be like, oh, I didn't know this was a red blend. And there you go. Yeah, and I was thinking other ways to just quickly, you don't see it a lot. Have you ever seen like a wine shop that the shelf just has like a, picture of the flag or something of the country it's from so you can just quickly look at it 
without putting the name of the country? Just yeah, just you could put the I guess you could put the name with it. I think everybody pretty much knows Italy, France, mm-hmm. US. I've seen you know, some but, that will use like flags, but they would still put the country under there too. Yeah. But maybe they're gonna put every wine from that country in one section. Sure. Just thinking of a way to ID things and mm-hmm. you know, my head there. So, I kinda I mean, like the flag idea actually. This is just a, a thing that's always out there in the wine world. I don't really think we've hit on it much when we've done wine education class. People really don't ask about the old world, new world. So I think mm-hmm. it's it's something we should probably say more, and that's why we we figured we talk about it today. So yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I'm kind of taking the opposite end of it. I don't know that we necessarily have to keep differentiating between the places that traditionally made wine and then these places that are newer places to make wine. We're all one great big. Wonderful. It's all world good. Of wine. Yeah. Yeah. All <laughs> and especially good. with that style thing, you know, it, maybe it's going to become less and less relevant. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. We're here every week on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM, and you can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. For more information about myself, please go to franklinlickers.com. Now we're going to talk about champagne and sparkling wine. And we love this, Kim, right? Kim always gets excited. We want to work in. There's some really trending news first to talk about in the champagne world. Yeah, kind of some breaking news. <laughs> deal with Russia. And, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, Kim. It's It's been in the news. Putin in Russia now has an issue with champagne coming into his country. So why don't you tell our listeners what's happening, Kim? Well, I think it's that Putin decided that they should, they producers of sparkling wine in Russia should start labeling all of their bubbles as champagne or the Russian equivalent of champagne. Shepenskoya, I think, is uh, is good. the name. So a- apologies to those of you who know Russian uh, for my terrible, terrible pronunciation. <laughs> good attempt. And so Putin apparently doesn't want French champagne to be called champagne. Um, <laughs> he only wants Russian sparkling wine to be called champagne. And the French are having none of this because, as we know, the Champenois are very, very protective of that feel that it associates their product, very specific type of environment, very specific production method. They don't want the color associated with anything. You there used to be that, you know, you could have your car be, be champagne. You could have nail polish called champagne. You could have all of these things called champagne. Nope. You can't have perfume named champagne. None of it. Can't use the word or, or they really will, um, will come at you. And so we now have this issue that Russia is saying, well, our sparkling wine is also going to be called champagne. And now there is a bit of a international tiff between France and Russia. And France is saying, well, we are going to shut down all trade to your country unless you change this. And it is an interesting brouhaha based all around wine. So I was looking at the top importers get champagne from the champagne region and Russia's not even in the top 10. I thought they were a huge They used to be. 
back, so you know, a hundred years yeah. ago or more than a hundred years ago when it was still the czars ruling the royal classes of pre-Soviet Russia loved their bubbly, like big, 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 but not necessarily a, a modern market that is high up, like you said, on that list of champagne importers or consumers. So the champagne region produces about 300 million bottles a year. And they said Russia imports about 50 million liters of sparkling wines a year, sparkling total. Not Total. just champagne. And 13% of that 50 million liters is champagne, which is about one and a half million bottles out of that. Which is still a million, lot, but, you know, for is, a country yeah. that size. Yeah. So now the champagne people, which you said, they protect, they do everything they can to protect that name and to say it's from that region. So Russia is saying, you, we don't want you to say it's from your region. At first they were saying no. And the president came back and backed the French producer said, I'm going to back you. It's not right. But now they're thinking we're going to lose 1.5 million bottles in sales. So I think they made an agreement where they're going to put what Russia wants on it, but they're still going to put champagne somewhere on the back or something. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't understand it. If they're so strict about protection, then just don't sell it to them. Right. Right. And I, I think that was the original sort of knee-jerk reaction was like, okay, if you're not going to follow our rules about it, you're not going to get any of it or anything else <laughs> from France. <laughs> They're going to, they'll end up changing their labels. And right now in this country, we can't even get, I don't know if you noticed, Kim, you're the big bubbly, you know, buyer and drinker, but I haven't been able to get like Clico since Thanksgiving. Really? There's no Dom Perignon. There's no Clico. Now there's a Moet short. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if the tariff. There's a sparkling they, wine. Oh, well, we talked so much about this last summer, right? That yeah. they didn't and they produce said, nearly as much champagne last summer and last fall due to bad weather and due to COVID. That they destroyed we, like, what, a third of the crop? Something right. like that? And we kept going back and forth, seeing it was way up during COVID. Then it was way down. We couldn't really figure out what was going on. Now they're saying the crop this year, which doesn't affect what they have in storage now, but we, right. like you said, the frosts and other things, the production's way down. Yeah, but I especially don't know for the Chardonnay. If it was the tariffs, they just didn't take it in and now they can't get it. Uh, I, what's going on? But there's a shortage right now. So that's true because there could, well, but champagne wasn't part of the tariff issue. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't included. No, sparkling yeah. wine was not was not part of yeah, the tariff. But champagne and cognac right now is just like impossible to get. I don't understand it. That's but we got off the Russian thing. But so huh. we'll have to watch what's going to happen if, if they're still going to ship to Russia. Or I just think it's funny how Putin comes up with these things. All of a sudden, you can't <laughs> you can't say this. You know, I'm sure they're doing that with a lot of other products you don't hear about. Maybe we just have our our ears perked up. <laughs> When yeah. it comes to wine. So. <laughs> always, I've always got my ear tuned to the news. Like what, what's going on in the wine world these like days? So, like you're so, they're so protective of it. And there was another going away from champagne, but it's staying on the sparkling. Did you see where Prosecco is suing uh, Croatia because mm -hmm. they have a wine called Prosec? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Well, Prosec, they yeah. They don't want them to use that because people are going to associate it with Prosecco. So they're right. going after them. There was something also about, I don't know if it was champagne that went after an ice cream company or something because 
of the flavor. I mean, it's just crazy how. They, yeah, well, that, so you know, that kind of comes down with that whole champagne protecting its brand reputation. You know, you can't use the word on anything. I guess they need to call it Prosecco ice cream. Yeah. So it's, what, well, the reason we wanted to bring that in is because we saw an article in Decanter, how to store your champagne at home. And we're going to say champagne sparkling for this kid. <laughs> right. A, champagne slash sparkling wine. Yeah. Any sparkling wine should right. really Because we understand that cool. most people out there aren't popping a bottle of champagne all that often. Um, even I don't. And I drink a lot of bubbles. But the number of times a year that I open a bottle of true French champagne is not very much. I wish it were more. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but a lot not. of other sparklings are out there. Lots we of good talk stuff about there. it. And yep. we're always talking about the bubbly, but we, you know, we have to work in how should we be taking care of this if you have those bottles at home. Mm-hmm. At and, first and, they- and I don't think that too many people are thinking about aging their sparkling wine. But for those of you who who do and who maybe are thinking ahead to perhaps a special anniversary or a party that you have coming up in a few years to celebrate, you know, some milestone or wedding for a child or something like that. You know, that's these are good things to think about ahead of time, especially if you do have the capacity to buy a little bit ahead of time and then give it, a, you know, some time in a, a protected area of your home. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. If someone's having an anniversary <laughs> or graduation and you and you want to get them a bottle yeah. of sparkling, is that a good idea to give to someone to tell them, you know, put it away? You're getting first off, you're not going to find if you're getting married now this year, you're probably not going to find a champ. You're not going to find a champagne with this vintage right now to right. meet the thing. So do you recommend actually doing that as a gift idea for someone to put away? Guess what I give all of my cousins when they got married? <laughs> Did you give them sparkling? Everybody got good champagne. Yeah. That well, that is my now, that is my wedding present that I give people. If yes. the champagne is from a good vintage year, mm-hmm. is it is it safe to say that can be aged because a little the vintage bit. was good? Yeah, what the interesting thing about aging champagne is that it follows a slightly different rule than age not just one rule. It, it actually breaks a few of the rules that we ordinarily would tell people to follow when you're aging other wines. So the conventional wisdom now is to not store champagne laying down, that you don't necessarily need to have the cork in contact with the wine. But honestly, this topic goes back and forth and back and forth. You know, every 10 years, there's a different recommendation. Do you lay it down? Do you stand it up? Now with screw caps, what do you do? But the the thinking right now is that you don't have to age sparkling wine laying down. You can stand it up. But often, you know, when we tell people, oh, you know, this is a wine that is going to taste better in, say, 10 years, you don't necessarily have to worry about the cork doing its cork job. Whereas for sparkling wine, you really need that cork to be exceptionally tight in the bottle and doing its job of not letting even a tiny little bit of air out of that bottle because you've got a bottle under pressure. And the important thing, not just the flavor of the wine, but the bubbles in the wine. So one of the reasons why it's sort of a catch-22 for aging bubbles and good bubbles especially is that, yes, you want to age them for a few years, but that cork is only going to last for a finite amount of time. 
corks will dry out regardless of how you store them. And when they start drying out, you're going to lose the bubbles. So I've had people come to me saying, oh, I have this bottle of, you know, whatever, something, you know, really high end, like a crystal or something. And they're like, and I've been saving it since 1985. Do you think it's still good? I'm like, and I look at the quality of the cork. I'm like, no. Like it's leaking. You've lost all the sparkle. Yeah, it's, it's really. <laughs> Whereas if you have a bottle of Bordeaux that is of a similar age and has also been stored appropriately, that's probably going to be wonderful because if a little bit of air is let in there, it's not going to destroy the wine. But if that cork on that bottle of champagne has degraded to the point that it's dried out and it's let all those bubbles escape, you've lost so much of the personality of that champagne. And it's really a shame. The decanter article Kim mentioned you might want to consider a magnum or a larger format, yeah, a bigger, wine a bigger to, bottle to put for one. And that's what kind of why I started with the if you're going to age some of it, only do it for a special occasion. Like, don't just have a bottle of yellow label Louvre Clicquot hanging around in your basement for 15 years. <laughs> Hopefully there'll be more of it in the market. You're saying it's hard to get right now, but only do it for those really special ones. If you have plenty of money and you love to drink champagne and you really like hunting for vintage champagnes, you know, go for it. But if you are riding on this one special bottle of bubbles that you have put aside for, like you said, your child's college graduation or a 25th wedding anniversary or something really special, it's such a shame if that bottle is not perfect when you finally get around to opening it. And I've had that experience. I had a three or a six liter. I had this ginormous bottle of champagne and I forget what the producer was, but it was something wonderful. And I saved it too long and I moved it from one house to another house. And I finally opened it on New Year's Eve with a bunch of friends and the cork had dried out and all the bubbles were gone. And it was memorized and it was such a disappointment. And it was all my fault (laughs) because I should have opened it like five years or 10 years earlier. So no fizz whatsoever, no pop at all? No fizz, no bubble, didn't pop, was kind of brown in color. Like it was very disappointing. So let's just refresh again, basic storage, avoid bright lights, sunlight. And avoid regular refrigerators. Yep. Vibration from a fridge Mm -hmm. is bad. The temp should be pretty constant and the humidity should be at a decent level. Nothing yeah, too so you humid, need it to be thin. a little bit, I mean, not damp, but you want it to have some sort of humidity control. And the the actual temperature that you store it at is less important than the consistency of the temperature. So whether you have it at 60 or 50, either of those are fine, but you don't want it going from 50 to 75 back down again every single year, because that is what is going to degrade your wine a bit. We have some sparkling news. We have some sparkling storage information. Anything else quick on the... um... I would say just that, you know, if you are looking for those larger format bottles of champagne, they're not the easiest things to get. So sometimes you can find them in a wine shop, but often you will have to either go to a specialty wine store or ask your friendly neighborhood retailer if they can special order one for you. If you have something special coming up or if they're, you know, say you got married in 1995 and you want something special for your 30th anniversary, ask and say, hey, can you find me a magnum of something 95 vintage? I'm just pulling that vintage out of my mind. I don't even know if 95 is a designated champagne vintage, but something like that. You know, this is where it really helps to have that conversation with your trusted retailer. That was a good vintage. Good. Was it? 95? Yeah, 95 was good. (laughs) 
a lot of the 90s were pretty good. But it, that's a great point, Kim, about the going into a store. You want to, if you see one, you know, straggler hanging there, be, be careful because- Yeah, it's probably been there for a while. You know, most retailers won't stock it, like you said, but they special order it. And the distributors mm-hmm. are taking care of them. They know when it should be, well, they should know. Right. We're hoping And those distributors, you know, those big warehouses that they store their wine in, those are temperature controlled. Those don't, you know, they're not sitting in a refrigerator and having any, you know, vibrations unless they're in- I don't know, earthquake country. But I would say that often I get questions from people about, oh, I want to buy a wine from my child's birth year or something like that. And I usually say like, yeah, you know, champagne can be a really good way to go so that, you know, you're opening up this 21 year old bottle of wine. But just be careful because not every year is a designated champagne vintage. So for a vintage bottle of champagne, so one that has the year on the label, you're not going to find those for every single year. You're only going to find them for the best years. So like I have bottles of wine set aside for my kids so we can all party on their 21st birthdays, but only one of my kids was born during a champagne vintage year. So for one of my, um, sometimes people think about that, but they age for a while at the winery. So say you have a kid who was born in, I don't know, what's one of the more recent vintage years of champagne, Mark? 14. 14. Okay. So say you have a kid who was born in 2014. You're probably only now just seeing those bottles on the market. So just be aware that those take a little while. So you're not going to be able to say, give that as a christening gift to your nephew when he's three months old. <laughs> Those are not going to be available in the market yet. So a little bit of patience is usually needed for that situation. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. We welcome your questions and comments. And past episodes can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. Bye, bye, bye.